Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so we're continuing our look at the seven letters to the the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and, and we can see some of the really perennial struggles that the church faces in this world. We, we saw the struggle of the church in Ephesus, that they had forgotten their first love, that the reception of the gospel and the means of grace wasn't the heart and center of their life together as a church. We see that church in Smyrna was preparing to suffer for their confession of the gospel, and Jesus told them not to lose heart, but to keep the faith. And as we look at the church in Pergamum, we, we see another struggle that the church Faces is they're, they're put in a difficult situation as Satan dwells in their city. He rules, he makes decrees, he dictates what is acceptable, and if a person is found outside of Satan's dictates, he suffers. And when we think about that, when Jesus says, Oh, you in Pergamum, the city where Satan has his throne. We have to wonder, what is he referring to here? What does he mean when he says Satan has his throne in their city? And to this question, we can gain a little bit of clarity from history, right? Uh, The ancient world at that time was ruled by the Roman emperors. And uh, one of the great tools that Caesar Augustus made use of in the consolidation of his rule was Roman religion, right? He was the heir of Julius Caesar, and he wanted to cement the line of Caesar as the divinely appointed rulers of the Roman Empire. And so how how would he do this? Well, after Caesar dies, he has the Roman Senate declare him as a new god in the Roman pantheon. And so uh, upon his death, Caesar was a god. And Caesar Augustus declared that he was to be a god as well upon his own death. And all who followed after him were to be sons of the divine Augustus. Caesar Augustus would be the godhead of Rome. And all those descended from him and ruled after him ruled by his divine power. And all who followed after him would enter into their godhead upon their own death. And so we go from Tiberius to um, Caligula to Claudius to Nero to Vespasian to Titus. And then we get to Domitian. Domitian was the younger brother of Emperor Titus. Titus was a capable ruler. Domitian, he was the weaker brother. He was the least favorite of the sons. He was the one who was the backup plan. And upon his brother's untimely death, everyone looked and said, oh no, we get Domitian. And so quickly, he needed to solidify his authority to rule in the place of his brother, and so he went above and beyond just being the son of a god. But he declared himself to be Domitian Dominus et Deus. Domitian, your Lord and your God. And he enforced the imperial cult with swift brutality. And so, to be a good and loyal Roman citizen, you had to worship the Roman gods. To be a good Roman, you had to honor Caesar as God. 
You had to bend the knee. You had to say, Caesar is my Lord. You had to burn incense at his altar. The Christians found this to be too much. They would not concede to calling Domitian their Lord and their God. They would not worship anyone other than the God who saved them. They would not burn incense at Caesar's altar. They would not worship that man in Rome. They would not deny their Christ. They couldn't do that. And so because of this, the early Christian church suffered. As Domitian instituted the first empire-wide persecution of the Christians... He said, if you were loyal, if you were a good citizen, if you were to be trusted by your government and your neighbors, you would say Caesar is Lord. You would worship at his altar. And those who didn't want to were unpatriotic and they were treasonous. You were not to be trusted by the public and you were branded an enemy of the progress of Rome. And so we see the Christians find themselves in a tight place. Do they suffer? Whether they seek to be accepted as good and normal. Do they compromise their faith to gain earthly honors and opportunities, or do they gladly suffer as confessors of Jesus? The world had some tempting promises uh, material wealth, security, freedom, not to mention how tempting the worship of the pagans' gods actually was in which they were given the freedom to get drunk in the temples. They were given freedom to make use of the temple prostitutes. They would have complete license to attend the feast and gorge themselves, eat, drink, and be merry. And all the while, you're doing your part to be a good Roman citizen. You're seeking to please the gods. You're seeking to give in to your sin, go along and get along. But in all of it, you're a patriot. You're faithful. You're a good member of society. Maybe you can see the parallels in our day. Because the greatest tool that is used against the church is the promise of social acceptance. You see, the devil loves to capitalize on our desire to be and appear normal. Say what you're told to say. Do what you're told to do, and if you don't do it, well, we'll cancel you. Your name will be dragged through the mud. You'll find it impossible to find work, be accepted in a community, be part of anything meaningful. You'll be considered an enemy of progress. Progress is the new imperial cult, by the way. Progress means change. Casting off the old and blindly accepting the new. So no more of that old tradition in the church. No more of that social morality. No more of that ignorant bigotry. So things like marriage and family and sexuality and gender and sobriety and work ethic and ultimately grace, forgiveness, and love. They need to give way to acceptance, ambiguity, and depravity. If you don't move with society, hey, you're part of the problem problem is quickly dealt with. In Pergamum, the throne of Satan had taken its first victims in the cause of societal progress. As Jesus refers to the Christian who was killed in Pergamum, Antipas, he calls him my martyr or my witness in the faith. Blood had been shed. And that's when things get real. 
for the Christians. When a brother in the faith is killed for the sake of the faith, the reality of the war that we are engaged in is made very clear. Because the fear of this consequence can make the temptation to go along to get along so much stronger. To this real fear and to this real temptation, Jesus had something to say. First, he reminds them of who he is. How does Christ combat the devil? With his sword. He's the one with the double-edged sword coming forth from his mouth, and that is his word. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he use? He used his word. He spoke the scriptures to ward off Satan, to uncover his lies, to reveal his blasphemies. This word is the weapon you have been given to combat the dictates of the throne of the evil one. Psalm 119 says, How can a man keep his way pure? But by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, O Lord. Let me not wander from your statutes. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is what puts the devil to flight. It is the word of God. It is his sword. And even when the devil would rage against us, even if he would seek to destroy our lives, throw us into poverty, or even kill us and all of our loved ones, he cannot revoke a single mark of God's word. Not a syllable, not a sound, not a breath. As Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, my word will not pass away. And the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and the Christ who forgives sins, that's the rock that overcomes the gates of hell. That's the offensive weapon that bursts open the gates of hell. As Jesus says, as Peter, as he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom to heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what happens to the gates of hell? Well, the rock of the word breaks them. But what happens to the gates of heaven? They are unlocked. They are opened. Of course, we see that many do abandon the faith. Many embrace the demand of the Romans. They chose to get along with the world. But in the process, they lost something. Jesus warns against this. He says to the church in Pergamum, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. You think back to the book of Numbers, where Balaam was hired by the king of Moab, Moab, sorry, Balak, to curse Israel as they were marching through the lands of Moab into the land of promise. And yet, as every time he would go up to the mountain to curse the children of Israel, God would not let the curse come out of his mouth. 
but only blessings and promises could flow forth from Balaam's mouth. Even promises of the coming Savior, so that as Balaam goes up to curse Israel, the word of God flows forth from his mouth, and the promise of the Messiah and the blessing of God upon his people is delivered. And so Balaam has to come up with another idea to make Balak happy with him. And he sees the beautiful women of Moab, and he says, send them to the men of Israel. Seduce them. And so these women seduced the men of Israel, and to the point where they intermarried with them, and they started worshiping their false gods. You see, that little sin leads on to full-on idolatry as the stumbling block that Balaam sets before the people of Israel causes them to marry the Moabites, and before they knew it, they were worshiping their gods. Psalm 106 talks about how bad it got, as it says, Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, and they sacrificed and offered to the dead. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of the Canaanites, and the land was polluted with blood. And thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds." That same temptation existed for Pergamum, where they begged the question, well, does it really matter? Does this little bit of incense to Caesar really mean anything? We all know Caesar's not a god. I burn the incense and they get along with me. If we do it, we'll be accepted, we'll be counted as one of them. Think of how we could influence them by joining them. Think, if they thought we were just normal people, maybe they'd be more responsive to our message. We might even gain some believers out about it. That's not how it worked. Burning the incense to Caesar, eating the meat that was sacrificed to their idols, taking part in the perverse activities of their temples, well, they forgot one thing. How weak their flesh is. So often we seek to do the societally acceptable things and we rationalize in our hearts, oh, this is benign. It doesn't matter. It won't hurt me. But here Jesus says, see what happened to Israel? How quickly they fell away just so that they could get along with the Moabites? That they thought that they could maybe influence Moab, but it really happened the other way around. Don't make their same mistakes. Not even if you don't believe if Caesar is a god, or if you think that the meat sacrificed to the idols doesn't mean anything. Remember how quickly our hearts can be turned. Do not fall to this temptation. Remain faithful. And the same warning goes to us. There, there aren't any little sins. There's nothing that we do as we live in this world that's truly spiritually benign. And that means that there is no compromise when it comes to the Word of God. It is all or it is nothing. Either God's Word is pure and perfect so that we should believe in it with our whole hearts and seek to keep it in our lives, or it is completely malleable, negotiable, and meaningless. 
And so Christians, we are called to stand upon the word of Christ and if necessary, suffer for his truth's sake. And when Jesus talks about this, he does not refer to it as a curse, but a blessing. Think about how Jesus refers to Antipas, who died as Jesus' faithful witness. What does Jesus say? He says he's my faithful witness. Jesus claims Antipas as his own. And he does the same for all, hold fa- all who hold fast to his word and truly believe in it. For those who deny it, Jesus says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to war against you with the sword of my mouth. And so we see that we either hold fast to Christ in faith, or we find that his word stands against us. The sword of Christ's judgment is already being wielded against the throne of Satan. And as we cling to Christ, that means it's being wielded on our behalf. And this is why Jesus leaves Pergamum with a promise for those who endure and do not fall down before the throne of the evil one. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. First, he promises hidden manna. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here Jesus is promising to sustain his Christians as he fulfills us and fills us with the gifts of his promises. Namely, he will sustain us with his broken body as it earns us forgiveness of sins. That hidden manna that Jesus promises is nothing other than the forgiveness of sins that every Christian receives from Christ. And we receive that hidden manna as we eat and drink his very body and blood given for us. It's a foretaste of the greater feast that is to come. How much better is that manna than the meat sacrificed to idols? How great is the provision of Christ compared to the things that Caesar promises? Not only does he promise us the hidden manna that preserves us into eternal life, he promises them a white stone with a new name. And what other thing than that is our baptism. This is where we receive a new name. The name above all names. This is where we are accepted into a eternal citizenship. We're baptized into Christ. We bear his name. We bear his mark in our lives. And think of this. What does the throne of Satan promise? Citizenship and meat? Well, we have better food. We have a better name. We have a better citizenship. As that white stone could be considered a sign of our heavenly citizenship, our citizenship, our belonging, doesn't dwell in this world. We're not to be overly concerned with the approval of Caesar and other earthly rulers. Because we belong to a different kingdom. And St. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears... They now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction, their God is their bellies, their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But not you. 
Your citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, for my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Do not be cast around by the whims of our culture. Do not bend the knee to the throne of Satan. Do not compromise your faith so that you can seem like a normal person. Stand firm in the word. Be his faithful witnesses. Because he promises you a better food. He has given you a better citizenship. Your food is heavenly food. Your citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. You belong to Jesus. You are his. You are his martyrs. Another word for witness. And so bear witness to the hope that you have by never compromising it. This means holding to what is sacred to the Christian and rejoicing in the things that Jesus gives us. Cling to them. Do not let them go. Do not yield an inch of the promises that Christ has given you. Do not forfeit them so that you can seem normal. Don't give up your salvation for acceptance or entertainment or pleasure or fun. These things are fleeting. They pass away. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow, and then the world is off to another obsession and another whim. And they can never give you what Jesus gives. As Jesus gives you the bread of heaven and a place in his kingdom. Let us pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to never bow down to the various altars of normalcy in this world. Have mercy on us in our weakness. Strengthen us in your promises. and Help us to hold fast to our confession that you are the bread of life and that our citizenship is in heaven. In your name, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus.